And hello, everybody. It is Saturday night, February 18th, year 2012. I'm Long Hughes. Let's do our prayer first. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity of being on this station, for the supporters and the listeners. Thank you for the show, all the good stuff, the good memories of days gone by. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, Patricia and I have a wonderful special guest. Jack Benny's daughter, Joan, will be our special guest. So I'm going to put a little bit of a Jack Benny show while I get everybody on the line. So here we go, everybody. The Jack Benny Program, presented by Lucky Strike. <laughs> LSMFT, Lucky Strike, means fine tobacco. Here's what independent tobacco experts say about the fine tobacco bought year after year by the makers of Lucky Strike. Quality tobacco. Fine, ripe smoking leaves that makes a smooth, mild smoke. Lucian Purdom, 35 years a tobacco auctioneer, said that. Fine, mellow tobacco you can't beat for top smoking quality. Smoked like as myself for 19 years. Fred Evans, independent tobacco buyer, said that. Season after season, at market after market, Independent tobacco experts like Mr. Purdom and Mr. Evans can see the makers of Lucky Strike buy that fine, that light, that naturally mild tobacco. So for your own real deep-down smoking enjoyment, remember, LSMFT, Lucky Strike means fine tobacco. So smoke that smoke of fine tobacco, Lucky Strike. So round, so firm, so fully packed, so free and easy on the draw. Broadcasting from New York City, the Lucky Strike program, starring Jack Benny, with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and filling in for little old fatty Don Wilson is yours truly, Kenny Delmar. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it has often been said that it takes brains to make money. I don't want to start an argument, but here's the star of our show, Jack Benny. Thank you, thank you. Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking, and Kenny Delmar, you can save those introductions for Fred Allen. You know, you don't have to... Kenny, Kenny, I'm talking to you. <laughs> Kenny, look at me. I'm sorry, Jack, but when I hear the name Fred Allen, I instinctively bow my head. <laughs> well, Kenny, if you bow your head low enough, you might see his hooper. <laughs> Imagine making people bow to him. Of course, well, I haven't been in New York a long time. Well, Jack, the, the last time you were in New York and you met Fred Allen, you bowed. Kenny, I wasn't bowing. I just couldn't look at that face. <laughs> what a homely guy. I've never seen a guy. Oh, now, wait a minute, Jack. Fred isn't so homely. He isn't, eh? Allen's face has so many wrinkles, when he gets a shave, the barber has to use a bookmark. <laughs> The only time Alan's face isn't out of place is during the baseball season. The baseball season? Yeah, with those bags under his eyes, his nose looks like it's caught between second and third. <laughs> and the rest of them should be sent to the showers. Believe me. Well, Jack, I, I didn't want to mention this, but since you're talking about Alan, I think it's only fair that I tell you something. What? Well, Fred said that you've got so much money that you have no more places to keep it. Uh-huh. So any money you make from now on, you're going to have melted down and shot into your arm. <laughs> No, 
know, it's a good idea. It'll give me all my vitamins. M-O-N-E and Y. Hello, Jack. Oh, hello, Mary. Mary, I haven't seen you since we got off the train. Where have you been? Well, I went right from the station to New Jersey to visit my mother. Your mother, eh? Well, how is the duck-billed platypus a plane for you? Jack, please. I don't my... know. They told me that's a local joke <laughs> here, is it? Everybody told me if I say it, they'll scream at it. Mama doesn't look like that. I'm sorry, ma'am. Maybe if she went to a beauty parlor, she could, you know. How's your sister, babe? I hope she's not running around with that guy she wrote you about, the undertaker. Oh, wait a minute, Jack. He's a nice fellow, and he's very sporty. He's the only undertaker in Plainfield who has a convertible hearse. Convertible hearse? That's a good idea. Get a little brown before they lower you down. (laughs) Your sister really fixed him, doesn't she? Yeah, but Dave is thinking of giving him up because he's always got his mind on his work. What do you mean, kid? Well, <laughs> one day she went riding with him without her makeup on, and he drove her straight to the cemetery. Yeah, that babe was frightened, wasn't it? You're not kidding. He almost finished the eulogy before she punched him in the nose. Well, why didn't she stop him sooner? Those are the first nice things he ever said about her. Oh, I see. Well, is babe still in Plainfield? Oh, no, no. She came back to New York with me. In fact, she's sitting in the audience right now. Where? Right in the third row. The girl with the marble hat. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Look at what it says. Babe Livingston, please keep off the grass. <laughs> oh, by the way, Mary, I want you to meet Kenny Delmar. He's our announcer today. Kenny Delmar? Why, Jack, you took him right off the Fred Allen show. No, no, Mary, not right off the Allen show. I sprayed him first. <laughs> you know, I'd like to see Allen's face next Wednesday when he sees my name in lights at the Roxy Theater. You know, he got sick when he heard about the business we did in Chicago. Uh, Jack, I understand that it's the first time in the history of the Chicago theater that it passed the $100,000 mark for any week. How much did you get out of it? Well, I... <laughs> I hate to brag, Kenny. I... You tell him, Mary, huh? Well, in setting the new racket, record, Jack... Racket? The new what? <laughs> <laughs> Leave it in. It's good. <laughs> you know, it was a new racket. <laughs> Start the line again, Mary. It's too good to lose. Okay. Go well, in setting the new record, Jack took in $113,000 for the week. $113,000? Yes, but of course he had to pay Phil, Rochester, Marjorie Reynolds, and the quartet. That left him $112,000. <laughs> yes. Then he paid his income tax, and that left him $1.65. Which he owes me for doing his laundry. I would have done it myself, but I didn't want to open at the Roxy with red hands. So you see, Kenny... You know, you have to wait here a little longer than Los Angeles. I'm getting used to it now. You see, Kenny, it isn't all... Come in. Pardon the intrusion, Mr. Benny. Well, it's Mr. Kitzel. Hey, Mr. Kitzel, are you having fun here in New York? <laughs> well, where have you been? No, please. You mean you're just staying in your hotel room? Who lives in hotel rooms? When I come to New York, I live with my aunt. Your aunt? Yes, Penzi Nussbaum. Oh, Mrs. Nussbaum. Uh-huh, she lives in an alley, and what neighbor she's got... And the one side lives a senator who's always talking about the South. Yeah. Next door lives a farmer who is always saying, howdy, Bobcat. <laughs> and also is living there a man named Ajax Cassidy who is <coughs> not long for this world. Well, 
I hope you're comfortable at Mrs. Nussbaum's. Yes, but next week, Benzie's mother is coming to live with her, so I'm moving to the YMCA. The YMCA? Yanko Mendelbaum's Chateau Amour. <laughs> Well, Mr. Kitzel, I hope you're enjoying your visit here. Oh, thank you, I am. And next week, I'm going to see your show when you open by the Roxy Theater. Good. You'll like my show. <laughs> yes, indeed. Particularly if Phil Harris is going to sing that song. Won't you come with me to Alabama? There we'll meet my dear old mammy. Frying <laughs> eggs and broiling pastrami. That's what I like about his house. Pastrami? Pastrami, yes. Mr. Kitzel, the, the word is hammy. Look, I just came in to say hello. Don't antagonize me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Well, all right, Mr. Benny, I'll come to see your show. Thank you. I mean, thank you. You got me doing it now. Goodbye, Mr. Kitzel. Goodbye. He's such a sweet little guy. I hope he has a good time here in New York. There's so many places to go... Excuse me, there's a phone. Hello? Mr. Benny? Yes? I have a long-distance call for you from Chicago. Chicago? Who's calling? The Sportsman Quartet. Oh, my quartet. Uh, put them on. Yes, sir. Here they are. Hello? <laughs> Fellas, what do you want? What's so important that you call me here in New York? Give my regards to Broadway. Remember me to Effie Boo. Uh, well, we're going to turn down Jack Benny and the Sportsman Quartet and say hello to Patricia. Hello, Hi, Patricia. Wilson. How you doing? It's Saturday, everybody. We have a wonderful guest tonight, and I get to introduce her. I'm so excited about this. We have so many people, Joan, who love Jack Benny. I will send out shows periodically to our listeners, and they ask for Jack Benny. I have a friend in Arizona who is so enamored with Jack Benny, and he said, oh, please remind me when Joan is going to be on. Jack Benny was born on February 14th, 1894. And that is Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day was this week. He was a Valentine's baby. And tonight we have Joan Benny, daughter of Jack Benny and Mary Livingston, to help us celebrate his birthday, celebrate the man, celebrate his incredible career, his life, his family, the gifts of humor that he and Mary Livingston left for all of us. Welcome, Joan Benny. Thank you, Patricia. I am so happy to be able to say hello to you. Well, it's my pleasure. And you mentioned about all the people who love Jack Benny. Uh-huh. And interestingly enough, so did I. <laughs> now, I know that sounds strange. I mean, obviously, of course, I was his daughter. But the truth is, as a real person, as my father, he was truly the nicest man I ever knew. I can honestly say that. He was a gentle, lovely man, and for those of you who listened to him and loved him, he was as wonderful as you think he was. That is so lovely to hear. Um, I have a couple of personal questions. Actually, I have a lot of personal questions because I know you and he had a very special relationship. And you're able to share some personal stories that we otherwise would never know about. So I'm going to ask you about some of them. 
Now, he was in vaudeville. He started in vaudeville. He entertained the troops during World War One. He was in the Navy. Stand-up comedian, radio personality, television star, movie actor. He did 32 movies. Seven of them were cameos, but he was in 32 movies. That just Most blew me away. very bad. I beg your pardon? <clears throat> Most of them not very good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there could be anything bad with Jack Benny in it. And he, and he played what I have here is that he played his violin at Carnegie Hall. Um, he was husband, dad, grandfather, friend. Did I leave anything out? I can't imagine that I did. No, but I could certainly talk about him as a grandfather. Uh, <laughs> you should talk to my to... son, Michael. This, we're going to talk about that. Joan, how well was he able to balance his personal life with you and family and his professional life, which was so extraordinarily pressing? Well, interestingly enough, certainly back when I was a little girl and he was in radio, his time, a lot of his time was spent at home. Uh, he and his writers wrote the show at home on Wednesdays and Thursdays. I would come home from school and they would be sitting in our library writing the show. And I would sneak in with my milk and cookies and sit in a corner, listen to them writing the show. So he was home a lot. He played golf. The only days he was busy were rehearsal on Saturday and doing the shows on Sunday. And of course, writing with the writers. But he was home, I think he was home more than your average father who worked from nine to five. Uh -huh. He was home much more than, than a normal working person. That is really interesting. A couple of the questions that I have for you are built around the thought that he was unusual as a father, not only because he was a, a major entertainer, but because you and he had the special relationship, and he did spend work time at home, which was That's different. True. From, this was different from the average bears out there. Mm -hmm. That's true. Well, the uh, the the way the week went, if you care, <laughs> it was yes. they did well. The show was done as as you know on Sundays, and after they finished the show, he would have a meeting with his writers immediately after the show. They would get together in a room privately for maybe a half an hour and discuss the next week's show and decide on the subject. Would it be Christmas shopping? Would there be a party at somebody's house? What would be the subject of next week's show? And they would then split up, and the writers, there were four writers, two of them would work on the first 15 minutes, the other two would work on the second 15 minutes. They would, of course, consult to find out where the first team left off, so the second team could pick up at that point. And Mondays and Tuesdays, they wrote the show. Mondays and Tuesdays, for my father, were playing golf or being with his friends, or going out to lunch, and, or being home. So he was kind of around the house. Wednesday and Thursday, the writers came to our home and, with my father, polished the show. And that was Thursday, Wednesday and Thursday. Friday was a run-through, and it only took maybe an hour or two, and then they did some more polishing. And then the show, maybe rehearsal on Saturday, then the show was on Sunday. So having told you the whole schedule of the week, as you can see, he was home a lot. He had a lot of contact with you. Now, when the writers were at your home for those two days doing writing, what kind of exchanges were going back and forth between the writers and your father? 
Actually, I'm glad you asked, Patricia. It was really, really interesting because the comedy was serious business. Mm -hmm. it, it was very serious writing the show, and there were the four writers, my father and their secretary, Jeanette, and they were gathered in, as I say, our library, and they would go over the show literally from the first sentence all the way through with a fine-tooth comb, every sentence. And my father was, of course, the final word. He was the editor. And the show, in, in a way, even though the writers wrote it, the show was really his. It was, I think, the, the, the operating sentence is, the buck stopped here. Mm -hmm. What he said was the final word. But they would go over it sentence by sentence, and is it funnier to emphasize this word or that word? Is it funnier to do it this way or that way? Just every detail, as far as people talked about my father's timing. Well, everything about the way the show was written had to do with timing. And the writers would come up, they would have a situation, and the writer would come up with a punchline. And this is kind of funny, Patricia. They would, I would listen to this, and one of the writers would say, well, I think the punchline should be, and he'd come up with something very funny. And if it was very funny, you'd see five very serious faces saying, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> no laughing. Very serious. That's funny. That meant that stayed in. Uh-huh. On the other hand, there was a lot of laughter. So it was it was great fun for me as a child to listen in on these writing sessions. Did you, were you actually in the room during some of these sessions? Oh, I, that was my favorite thing, to come home from school. And as I said, I don't remember now whether I had milk and cookies, but I'd probably get something to eat and then sneak in the library very quietly and sit in a chair in the corner, very quiet, like a mouse, uh -huh. and listen to what was going on. I loved it. And just listened. What did you learn from those sessions? I learned a lot about comedy. <laughs> I learned a lot about timing. Uh -huh. um, I learned how to tell a joke. Oh, I love that. My friends have always said, Joan tells the best jokes. And I said, well, I learned from the best. You, indeed you did. My gosh. Did, did this lifestyle, with your dad home more than what the average children had with their dads, you had work sessions at home, you had writing, your father was a major entertain, entertainer, I was going to say entertainment, well, he really was a major source of entertainment. Did that strike you as peculiar or different when you were out with other kids? No, because most of the other kids I knew were celebrities' kids, so I thought everybody was. Ah, okay. <laughs> I grew up, well, again, back to when I was a little girl. And by the way, then things changed. But when I was, let's say, you know, from 4 to 12 or 13, uh, most of my friends were the children of my parents' uh, friends. Mm -hmm. And my, my parents' close friends were the Gary Coopers, so I knew their daughter. Um, Joan Bennett's daughter was a close friend, Loretta Young's daughter, who, as you know, passed away recently, unfortunately. She was a very close friend. Uh, we went to each other's children's parties. Uh, there was um, I can't, uh, the Gosden, who was um, Amos of Amos and Andy, uh -huh. or maybe it was Andy. I can't remember now which one was which. But um, <clears throat> Freeman Gosden's daughter was a friend. So a lot of my friends 
uh, Danny, uh, Danny Milland, Ray Milland's son, uh-huh. uh, as, and on and on. They were, uh, they were the children I played with. So I grew up thinking everybody was a celebrity's <laughs> celebrity's kid. It was very ordinary. Uh huh. So for you, but I was... think I had, you know, I had an advantage because an actor would had a very different life. An actor was up at five in the morning and on the set all day would come home, barely grab dinner, and then go to bed. <clears throat> so I think uh, the children of actors saw their parents much less than I saw mine. Uh-huh. We have a caller. Uh, call, uh, Charles <clears throat> from New Jersey. You're on with John Benny. Hi, Mrs. Benny. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Oh, just as, this, as I told Walden and Patricia a couple weeks ago when I heard you were going to be on, I said, this is going to be such an honor because I am such a big fan of your father's. Well, that's so nice. Oh, yes. I could, I'm only 45 years old. I've loved old-time radio almost uh, 25 years. And when I first heard one of his radio shows, I was hooked. I could, I could, I could, I'd listen to him, and I even watch the television shows. I can watch them over and over again, and I just get the same laughter and happiness every time. That's very sweet and very nice to hear. Oh, it's all true. I'm sure if other people call in tonight, they'll say the same thing. As I said, I, I repeat, it's very heartwarming. <laughs> it makes me feel so good to know that there are people who, who still appreciate my dad and remember him and uh, enjoy his humor. It's a timeless humor. There is no timeline on it. It never wears out. No, it never does. You know, as I said, you can listen to the same. You can listen. I listen to the old-time radio shows, and it never gets, pardon the expression, old. <laughs> <laughs> No, and, and wasn't it nice when uh, comedians and comedy shows were so funny and they didn't have to be dirty and they didn't have to use bad language and they they could be funny? Isn't that a miracle? Oh, and got, yes, that's for sure, yes. <laughs> and, and, and your father, you know, even with the TV show and radio show, the cast was, you know, they seemed to work together perfectly. Yes, they did. Yeah. Really, you're right. It was a wonderful cast. And my favorite of all of them, of course, was Mel Blanc. I just... Oh. <laughs> poor, yeah, poor violin teacher. <laughs> oh, yes, Professor LeBlanc. Yes. Oh, that was one or two. Your, your father played the violin for real, didn't he? Yes, he did. Now, was, um, was he really that bad, or was that just in the show? <laughs> well, I don't mean to be rude, but I was... <laughs> I have to be, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll give you a very honest answer. He played the violin when he played concerts at Carnegie Hall or any other symphony hall. He actually played as well as he could. And now, when he played it on the radio show or television show, and he played very squeaky, that he played mm. comedy. But he did play the violin seriously. And the truth is, he wasn't very good for a very interesting reason. I, he had been away from it. When he left vaudeville and went into radio, he stopped playing the violin. He had studied as a child. He started out to be a violinist, and he was quite good. He played in the pit of, the, of a vaudeville house. Uh, his mother wanted him to be a concert violinist, and he was very talented. But then, in his 20s, he stopped playing, and he didn't go back to it again until probably in his early to mid-50s. And by the time he went back to it, he had, A, lost a lot of the technique that he had learned when he was young, and the other thing was he had lost 
hearing. And you know that when you play the violin, you have to have perfect ears because you don't, like on a guitar where you have frets and you know the note you're playing, or on the piano you know the note you're playing. With a violin, you have to hear it. And I would sit with him when he was practicing. I loved to be there. And he would play scales or exercises. And I would say, Daddy, wait, do that again. You're, you're sharp on the D. And he would look at me very seriously and say, No, I'm not. <laughs> didn't hear it. He didn't hear a lot it. of people did, yeah. Hear it. Yeah. So when he was a little off, he was a little sharp, he was a little flat, it was because he didn't hear it. Mm-hmm. So... No, he wasn't a great violinist as he he was older. He played as well as he could. Yeah, but it, it was not it, it it was not a shtick. He really no. was a violinist, and then he incorporated the violin into his routines. If I'm hearing you correctly. Exactly. Okay. Well, Charles. Him and him, him and Mary had such wonderful one-liners. You know, it's on this both TV and radio show. Didn't they though? Oh. My mother wasn't on the on television all that much. No, not enough. <laughs> No, she didn't like it, really. She was more, you know, she was on the radio show for all those years. And when he went into television, she really wanted to quit at completely. And I think she did a few television shows, and then she said, that's it, I'm finished. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Charles. All right, thank you. Thank you again, Mrs. Benny. Thank you. <laughs> My thank pleasure. You. There we go. I will talk to you later. Bye-bye. 714-545-2071. You want to talk to Joan Benny tonight, and uh, the line will be open. Go ahead, Patricia. Joan, Jack Benny has been described as one of the most beloved comedians, if he's not the most beloved comedian in, in entertainment history. I mean, this is just not, you know, for the 40s or the 30s, forever. What was there about him that earned the word beloved? That is very hard to answer. I think the character that he played of being cheap and um, kind of put upon, he was a little bit of a milk toast, and he was he was always the fall guy, and he was the butt of the jokes. And I think people related to that. And with all of his miserliness and the rest of it, I think the audience saw through it, and they knew instinctively that this was really a very nice man. It, his, his sweetness and his kindness, it came through. And they, I think the audiences recognized the, what a, the nice person that he was. How close was his stage personality to his real-life person? When I say stage personality, I mean entertainment personality. You talk about Jack Benny sitting with writers, and Charles referenced the entire group, the cast that he worked with, and, and how well they meshed and played off each other. How close was that to real life? Well, in many ways, what you saw was what you got. He was very much like the character he played, except, of course, he wasn't cheap, and he was very generous. He went out of his way to be generous, so people would realize that he wasn't the character that he played. Uh But a lot of the character he played was the real Jack Benny. So a lot of what we saw was what you lived with. Yes, very much so. How much fun is that? That is really fun. Now, you were talking just a little bit ago about being with him when he was practicing after, you know, later in life, after he had 
this huge gap between playing um, in, in concert and serious music. Um, he had this big gap, and then he picked it up again, and you were sitting in there. And, and when, before we got on the air, you mentioned about gifts, that uh, ha having picked up the violin again made it a little bit easier for you to find appropriate gifts. And I want you to talk about that in just a second, but Joan, I have to tell you, when you were sitting there and telling me how difficult it was to find gifts for a man, I thought you were going to tell me you bought him shoelaces. <laughs> no, nothing like that. Nothing like but. that. Not, not the John Wilson routine. Talk about that. The, the gifts that you picked out for him after he picked up the violin again. Well, it made it so easy because, of course, he was a man who hardly needed another tie or another shirt, and always for birthdays and Christmas, you, oh, what am I going to buy for my father? He doesn't need a wallet. He doesn't need a tie. What am I going to get for him? And then, miracle of miracles, he developed this, not, not only did he go back to playing the violin, but he developed this huge interest in it. So we went to concerts together whenever there was a visiting violinist uh, in Los Angeles as a soloist, whether it be Isaac Stern or Yasha Heifetz or Yehudi Menuhin um, and so on, we would go to the concerts. So we did that a lot together, and now a birthday would come up, and I could buy him a recording of Heifetz or a recording of Isaac Stern. Um, I would buy him scores. Uh, I would say, you know, Daddy, did you play, have you played the Beethoven Violin Concerto? Uh, here's the score. Why don't you take a look at it? Uh, it may be too difficult for you, but you can fool around with it and enjoy it. Um, I would buy him books about violinists. I mean, I had all this huge array now of, of gifts I could give to him. So many choices. When you went for years and he really had to struggle, and now you had some something. Talk to me about the violin. He he played a Stradivarius, and even the squeaks that we heard were on a Stradivarius. Yes, they were. were. <laughs> I know. It made me a little nervous when I realized what we were listening to. Um, tell me about the violin. Well, that's actually, Patricia. He did not play the Stradivarius all the time. I think he used it for the concerts. I'm not so sure that when you heard the squeaks, he wasn't playing his. He had a second violin, and I can't remember the name of it now. It was not a well-known name. I'm and so I'm not sure that when he played the squeaks and the, the practicing da-da-da-da-da-da-da, yeah. I think he probably played the other violin. Oh, Joan, I'm so relieved. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You, you know where the Strad is now. No. Oh, well, uh, he, he donated it. He left it to the Los Angeles Philharmonic to be played by the concertmaster. Oh, my goodness. And I go to concerts uh, in Los Angeles at Disney Hall, and our current concertmaster plays the, the, my father's Stradivarius. Oh. I love going. I go to concerts, and I watch the concertmaster, and there's my daddy's violin. Oh, what a sweet thing to be able to do. Does anyone acknowledge the violin when it's played at a concert? I don't think so. I, I don't think it's ever mentioned, but I know it's there. <laughs> you know it's there. The concert master would not um, stand up and say, we're playing on a very special no, instrument. No, no. Okay. But, but it is used, 
and sometimes the uh, the second chair because the concertmaster, who's I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I can't think of his name right this minute, and I know him. I'm having a senior moment, but he has his own very fine violin, mm-hmm. and sometimes the second chair, a, a, a woman, she plays it. But either one or the other, it, so it's always played. We have another caller, Ron from Hawaii. You are on with John Benny. Well, it's so nice to um, be able to talk to you from Hawaii, and um, I know Jack was a, he loves Hawaii, and uh, he mentioned on his show a couple of times about Hawaii. Well, I'm, I'm glad you said that. It's, forget, forget that my father loved Hawaii. Nobody loves Hawaii more than I do. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Descendants with George Clooney, but the movie, all the whole movie takes place in Hawaii, and I don't even know if it's a good movie. I was so happy to be in Hawaii that I loved every moment of it. <laughs> Just to be, I, I, I'm crazy about Hawaii. It's, it is the most beautiful place on earth. I know I'm supposed to be talking about my father, but I'd rather talk about Hawaii. Anyway, Ron, nice to talk to you. Now, what kind of discipline? How? What kind of disciplinarian was? your father as far as, you know, raising you up? Was he strict? Was he, um, how did he, you know, lecture you and stuff when he wanted you to do something that he wanted he to father do? father was very strict disciplinarian. He said, go see your mother. <laughs> that was it. You know, no, he was, my father was a pussycat for me. I was daddy's little girl. And any discipline came from my mother, and my mother was mid-Victorian. She was the disciplinarian. Oh, my. Now, when when they were writing the scripts, and you were sneaking into the library very quietly, where was your mother during all the time that, you know, he was, would she be part of the um, sit-ins, or she just left her alone? Matter of fact, uh, interesting that you asked, she never had anything to do with the writing of the show. Uh, she was never in the room. She had her girlfriends. She would play golf or have lunch with her girlfriends. And the the only thing that she did with the show was go to rehearsal and, and perform in the show. She had nothing to do with the writing of it. I think that when they went into rehearsal on Friday, she might object to a line or change a line or have a little bit of a say about her lines and her part in the show. But she really had practically nothing to do with the writing of the show. Now, was Babe a real person? Was Babe her real sister, or was just that was just a show situation? What a good question, because there were so many things on the show that were real, and so many things that weren't, and I think there was no way the audience could know which was which. And Babe was my mother's sister, my Aunt Babe, and I adored my Aunt Babe. She was just a, a great, uh, I guess some people would say great broad. She was fun. She was kind of dishy and fun, and I loved her. Now, when the show was on on Sundays, um, would you be at home with a babysitter, or where were you? I was there. I was at the show every Sunday. And where would you hang out, backstage or in the audience or where? We had, this was at the uh, radio. There was on the side of the stage, there were two levels of 
uh, viewing rooms, and one level was for, I, I was in the lower level. I can't remember now what the other one was, but I was always in one of the viewing rooms, so I was there every Sunday watching the show. And then after that, you'd be... Now, when I went to Palm Springs and New York and um, places to do their shows there, um, you, what, what, what happened to you? Where were you? I was always with them. They took, they took me wherever they went. And you ever had to go home school or uh, because oh. that was during school time, right? Well, a lot of it, back then, the schools were not so strict about taking your kid out of school for a week or two. And so they would just take me out of school for a week or two. Uh, fortunately, I was a very good student, so it didn't take me much to catch up. And so nobody seemed to object to it, and I, I never had any problem. I, uh, blowing my own horn, I was a valedictorian at, in grade school, so uh, I didn't have a problem being away for a couple of weeks at a time. Now, one last question, and that is when, after you, after you graduated from high school, uh, what, did, what did you do uh, as far as, you know, did you um, ever go into acting of some sort or, you know? Oh, I, the, I'm frequently asked about the, when my father went into television and there was a period of time when I went to college that was about the time that my father went into television. And people have asked me, well, how did your dad feel about television? Uh, did you see the television shows? Were you at the studio? And the fact is that that's, where, that's when my life changed because I now was away at college and I was a college student. And like any 19-year-old like any girl, I was much more interested in cheerleading and boys and dating and the whole college life. And I was away from home for the first time. And people have asked me, well, how did you feel about your father's television show? And my answer is, I don't know. I was interested in college. Were you ever on his television show or radio show? Yes, quite a few times. Okay. And yes, I, and that was fun. I enjoyed that. And I did try acting for a little bit because my parents kind of wanted me to do it. Uh, I had a, a very big problem with it, and that was that I had no talent. <laughs> so I gave it up rather quickly. But they gave me up rather quickly. So what did you end up doing um, in your career? Well, I mean, as far as, you know, after college, I mean, what did you write or did you do anything, you know? No, or were you a very fortunate, wonderful housewife, you know? I had a very checkered career. I got married, I have four children, and I now have six grandsons, one granddaughter. And uh, I got married, I taught at the local school, I taught remedial math. I then uh, worked at UCLA because, and I would work while my children were in school, and I could be home by three o'clock and be there when they came home from school. I worked as, this sounds so crazy, I worked as the, as, you're, you're gonna love this title, the assistant to the director of the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies. Whoa. Uh, I hope you're impressed. <laughs> I am. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it sounds far more impressive than it was. The reason I was hired is because I had done a lot of charity work and 
because my husband was involved with the motion picture Country Home, and I I put on premieres raising funds for the motion picture industry for the Country Home, and so I had great organizational skills. And the gentleman who ran the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies needed somebody to coordinate their symposia and their lecture series, and he needed somebody organizational. He didn't care whether I knew a darn thing about medieval or Renaissance. And the fact was, I didn't. (laughs) Did did any of your children follow in your father's footsteps as far as music or, you know, that... Entertainment of I have any a, kind. My older daughter uh, is a very fine pianist, but that's about as far as music goes. Uh, I don't know if you are aware of it, but I was adopted, and I never knew who my blood parents were. But for some very strange reason, I inherited math genes. I don't know how that happened, but when... I laughingly say I flunked first grade art. And when my mother said, did you get the lead in the school play? I said, no, I played a tree, but I got an A in math. And my parents didn't... Now, do you have any of his um, memorabilia, his tapes, or his shows in your house, or, or is it all stored in a library? I have a lot. And, uh, but my children really have more than I do. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. I, and I want to know in a little bit about your grandchildren and their connection to the older shows and radio. So- well, one comment before I hang up, and that is my music teacher, who taught me piano for nine years, was a big fan of your father's. And he would never miss a Sunday Jack Benny radio show. And he would always ask us on Monday, did you listen to the show? Wasn't that funny? We, he invited us to his house to play for us. Um, he was my piano teacher. But we, he wouldn't play for us until we all sat down and laughed and listened to your dad's show in Hawaii. That's how much he was a fan, uh, fan of your father. And he got me hooked on your dad's show. And every Sunday as a child and uh, when I grew up, I always listened to your father and your mother and laughed along with you with Mel Blanc and Phil Harris and oh, and and was there a lot of get-togethers at your house with the cast? Yes. Parties and stuff. Well, uh, I loved all the cast. They were all very nice people and very close and I had such fun with them. My favorite, as I mentioned, was Mel Blanc. And I never saw Mel Blanc that I didn't ask him to do Tweety Bird or Putty Tat or, or, or Bugs Bunny or one of his wonderful characters. And uh, he was such a nice man. And So at Christmas, he would have little get-togethers with his cast for yes. special holidays and stuff. Did they really have parties at your house? Uh, once a year, there was a cast party. The the cast of the show, with the exception of Mel Blanc, Mel Blanc was a close buddy of my dad's. The rest of the cast were what I would call business friends. They were people we saw on Sunday at rehearsal and at the show. They were not personal friends. They weren't people whose house we went to for dinner, or nor did they come to our house for dinner. Interesting. 
Well, I'm going to let you guys go. I, I thank you for letting me take up so much of you guys' time. But I really love your father and your mom. And I really uh, I have a whole bunch of Jack Benny radio shows in my collection because your dad always um, interests me as far as being a real human being. And I just loved his humor and his uh, mannerisms on, on radio. He was... He was so good to listen to. So I'm so honored that I had the opportunity to talk to you and hope that maybe when you come to Hawaii, who knows, we might get to meet each other in person. So until that, we'll talk to you again and I'll say to you, aloha. Aloha, Ron. Aloha to you too. Aloha, Ron. Mahalo. <laughs> oh, you, oh, see, he's trying to teach me, Joan, and you already know it. <laughs> you were in the middle of a story, and I didn't hear the end to it. You came home, you had been a tree in the play, you didn't do well in the play, but you got an A in math, and your mother, that's where I left off. Oh, well, my parents had a little trouble understanding how this strange child, <laughs> where did this strange child come from who could add columns of figures, <laughs> couldn't act, couldn't draw, had no creative ability. You know, that's really interesting. I perked up when you said, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm not in the entertainment business. I have no talent. You're, you probably had the best education in performance techniques and good humor. And well, what you know, I wound up doing, Patricia, was uh, many years later when my children grew up, I wound up uh, on the lecture circuit. Uh -huh. a, a friend of mine asked me if I would do a talk about growing up in Hollywood. And I reluctantly agreed to it. And the next thing I knew, a woman approached me and asked me if she could be my agent and would I be interested in doing this professionally. And it came at a time when my youngest child was going off to college. And I was starting to think, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And this literally fell in my lap. And for 25 years, I've been traveling around the country uh, talking for uh, groups like the Junior League and women's groups. Um, I did a lot of talks at, Air, of all places, Air Force bases to the officers' wives' clubs. And I've been doing, uh, I don't do it anymore. I laughingly say my audience is dead. <laughs> but, but she about growing up in Hollywood and we, what it was like to know Clark Gable and Cary Grant and the parties at my parents' house and the glamorous life of Hollywood back in the so-called golden golden age of Hollywood. Uh -huh. We have a call. John from Maryland. You are on with John Benny. Hello, John. Hello. 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 Hello, John. Go ahead, John. Joan? Yes. I, I never thought in my whole life I'd ever be talking to you. This is really wonderful. Well, I'm I, easy to talk to, actually. <laughs> one question. Yes. Another caller's call. Years ago, and I used to always listen to Jack Penny on Sunday. That was automatic. And there was a show where he was celebrating his birthday, and it was his 30th 
he was 38 years old, and then he finally admitted that he was going to be 39. Is this correct? I probably so. I don't know the show you're talking about, but okay. I can remember he he moved up one year to 39, but before that, he was always 38 years old. Yeah, well, he never went past 39. No, that's right. But I mean, I can remember that show when he celebrated his birthday. He he became 39 years old. Mm-hmm. That's been many years ago. It sure was. I just thought maybe you might have remembered that show. As a matter of fact, I honestly don't remember any individual shows. I remember little bits or little routines, but I can't remember any specific show. They were such a long time ago. My children, uh, who they have a lot of the shows, and I think my children know them better than I do. <laughs> well, I listen to just about every one of them. I never, never miss on Sunday. I would never miss it. Well, that was my that was my question. I thought maybe you could answer it. Sure. Maybe Walden can look it up somewhere. But I can actually remember that show. You bet. I can do it. Do it. Thank John for calling in. <laughs> or maybe Laura Less, the president of the Jack Benny Fan Club. She knows all of those. She sure does. Thank John. Hey, thank you all very much. All right. John. That's, that's Thanks, true. John. That's to 714-545-2071. You can call in and talk to Joan Benny. Go ahead, when Patricia. You mentioned your children a minute ago. Yes. How, now, they did not, or did they? Where, where did they grow up? Uh, they, well, they grew up initially in Beverly Hills. Uh-huh. And then they all went, as they grew up, they all went away to school. Okay. And I now have, strangely enough, I have two who live in Boston. I never had any connection to Boston, but two of my kids live there. Oh, for goodness sakes. And They're one all... lives in the Los Angeles area, uh-huh. and one lives in Colorado. Okay, now when, when they were growing up and went to school and said, my grandfather is Jack Benny, what kind of reaction did they get from the kids in school? Oh, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> I really don't know. They, they but didn't come home the only they... thing I can tell you is that my oldest, Michael, mm-hmm. uh, he was when he was born, my father was beside himself with joy, having a grandson. And when Michael was probably six or seven, my father started taking him when he went to when he went to a concert to play at a concert mm-hmm. or when he went to do a show, whatever he did, he took Michael with him. And it was so wonderful. For, and they really bonded. And Michael was 18 or 19 when my father died. So he really got to know his grandfather. He had a lot of time with him. I want to talk in a minute about the time that you and your father had. You had some very special personal time and some customs. I'll call them customs, not necessarily traditions, that you you had um, things that you did with each other that were very special to you. We have a caller, uh, Maurice from Washington, D.C. You, you are on with John Benny. Hi, Ms. Benny. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? Just great. Thank you. I'm a really big fan of your father's show, and I was just wondering how they assembled the cast. Specifically, I was wondering how we found um, Phil Harris and Rochester. Oh, my goodness, those are wonderful stories. At least Rochester is. I'm, I don't remember now how he found Phil Harris. I, I can't tell you that one, but I do know about Rochester. 
And that was in the very early days of his radio show, I'd say probably in the mid-30s, around 1935, 34, 35. The writers wrote a show where my father was traveling uh, by train from New York to Los Angeles, which uh, was actually reality. It, it echoed the real thing. My father actually was moving from New York to live in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and the writers wrote a show of, of his traveling there by train, and they needed somebody to play what was then a porter. And they, they auditioned quite a few people to play that part, and one of the people who auditioned was a man named Eddie Anderson, who was already an actor. He had already been in quite a few movies and was, had a fairly well-known name, and he auditioned for the part and got it. So, and the, the writers named the porter Rochester, and they hired Eddie Anderson to play the part of Rochester. So the show went off, and he was the porter, and at the end of the show, they lo- not only did, did my father love Eddie Anderson as Rochester, but they started getting letters from the fans of how much they loved this character of Rochester. So wow. The writers were now in a dilemma because they couldn't keep my father going back and forth on a train with a... And so Rochester became my father's valet. But that's how Rochester started on the show. And as a matter of fact, his name, the, the name Rochester, became so associated with him that even his wife called him Rochester. Nobody called him Eddie Anderson ever again. Oh, my. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, it seemed like they had quite a bond in real life. Yes. As I said, I've, but you asked about Phil Harrison. I don't remember how he started on the show. But I loved Phil. He was such a character. What did you love about Phil? Well, I, I, <laughs> I love musicians. That's for starters. You just give me a musician and I'm happy. Uh-huh. And I love the way he sang. And he would do a warm-up of, before the show. And he would always sing, That's What I Like About the South. I just loved that song. And I loved the way he sang it. And I loved his kind of gravelly voice. I, I just thought he was terrific. Thank you, Maurice. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Have a great night. Thanks, Therese. Thanks. All right. 714-545-2071. Our number if you'd like to talk to Joan Benny. Joan, you were talking about the grandfather role that your dad had with Michael. I have a question about your grandparents. Now, what I read, and you can help me if if I'm not correct here, when he started in vaudeville, that was okay. But when... He wanted to go on tour with a group. Your parents said no, or his parents said no, because he was only 17. At the same time, they allowed him to quit school in ninth grade in order to do this kind of work. Now, that, that sounded like it was at odds with each other. Did your father ever talk about that period in his life? Yes, but no, you you have the right idea, but you have it wrong. Oh, okay, go. <laughs> he, he did indeed quit school. He didn't like school. He was a terrible student, and he was a daydreamer, and he, he quit school at the end of, I think, before he even finished his first year of high school. And he, as I said, he played the violin, 
and he went to work for his father briefly. His father had a men's store, and he worked for his father very briefly, but he did it so badly that his father fired him. <laughs> and he got a job at the local vaudeville theater in Waukegan, Illinois, and I think it was called the Genesee Theater. And he played the orchestra, he played in the pit orchestra of the theater. He played violin. And so he actually had a job, and he worked there for quite a while. And then when I think the Marx Brothers came to Waukegan to perform, the, the mother of the Marx Brothers liked my father and asked if he would go on the road with them. And my father wanted desperately to go on the road with the Marx Brothers, but his parents wouldn't let him because I think, as you said, he was 17. And they, they said, you can't leave home until you're 18. Because he still lived at home. He just uh -huh. played in the local orchestra. Yeah. So the Marx Brothers went off without him. And when he turned 18, he did leave home. But he left with a middle-aged lady named Cora Salisbury. And with his parents' permission, because she was a very nice, as they say, widow lady, and she played the piano, my father played the violin, and they went, they didn't get very far from home. I mean, they played in little theaters in Illinois, mm -hmm. and they played semi-classical music, and that was it. He played the violin, she played the piano, and she promised his parents that she would take good care of him and see that he had three meals a day and didn't get involved with any fast women. And they, uh, uh, with, with that in mind, they agreed that he could leave home with Cora Salisbury. And that's how he started in vaudeville. That's a great story. Did you ever meet your Kobelski grandparents? Well, I never met his mother because I believe his mother died, I think he was in his 20s when his mother died, long before I was born. Okay. And I did know his father who retired to Florida, and I met him a few times, but I believe he died when I was about seven or eight years old. So I don't remember him well. So you don't have strong memories, of course. You were just a, a little munchkin. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I hardly remember him at all. Yeah. But my mother's parents lived in Beverly Hills, and they they lived until I had my children. Okay, so what, what was your relationship with her parents? And I hate to say, what kind of people were they? What kind of people were they? They were very loving and very sweet. They they uh, were originally from uh, Vancouver and Seattle, and they moved to Los Angeles. My parents bought a house for them, not not uh, about five or ten minutes away from where we lived. And I used to visit them a lot. I used to spend Friday nights at their house frequently. And they were very sweet. You know, to me, of course, they were very elderly people, which they probably weren't at all, but <laughs> they seemed elderly to me. Uh -huh. But they were very nice, and they loved my children. And my grandfather particularly, my mother's dad, mm -hmm. my grandfather just adored my, my children. Would you so, talk about, I'm sorry. No, I, as I said, they were just very lovely people, very quiet, soft-spoken. There's not a lot to say about them, really. Your mother had Babe as a sister. Were there other siblings in that family? Yeah, well, she had a brother whose uh -huh. name was Hilliard, and Hilliard worked part-time for my father. 
Um, I think he actually was kind of, in name only, a pr the producer of the show. Uh, I think just to give him a job, a little nepotism there. Um, and he was married, and I think he had a son who was killed in Vietnam. I wasn't very close to him either. The one I was close to was my mother's sister, Babe. Uh-huh. And she never had any children, but she was, um, as I said, she was great fun. She was a very funny lady. Tell me a funny story about her. I don't think I can do that. I can't think of any particular funny story about her. I just enjoyed being with her a lot. It sounds like it. How did your parents meet? Uh, rumor has it that they met, uh, I'm not sure this is a true story, um, I'm trying to remember now. My father was playing at a theater. Oh, my aunt, babe, she was married and she was in vaudeville. This is very early on. She had a vaudeville act with her husband. Not a very successful one, but they played little small theaters. And they were in Los Angeles and they were playing at the same theater as my father. And Babe knew my father just because they were on the same bill at this at the theater, and she arranged a double date with her sister. And my mother's real name was Sadie, mm -hmm. and she arranged a double date with my father to take out her sister Sadie. And I think that's how they met. How did Sadie become Mary Livingston? Strangely Sadie enough, it's a very it's a similar story to the Rochester story. Um, the writers wrote a, a part on the radio show for a fan uh, uh, to come up to my father and ask him for his autograph. And the, the girl who was to come up and ask for his autograph was a girl named Mary Livingston, and she was from Plainfield, New Jersey. And they had a whole act, little act for her uh, with, with a scene with my father about getting his autograph. And they hired an actress to, to play it, and she got sick at the last minute, and my mother went on and played that part. And again, just like Rochester, the audience loved her, and they got a lot of letters about, you know, we want to hear Mary Livingston again. And so the, the writers kept writer, writing her in the show and kind of made her whatever she became. And what she became on the show, nobody was ever very sure of. I mean, she wasn't exactly my father's girlfriend. She wasn't his secretary. She was just there. You know? I'm not, nobody's quite sure what her role was. But she was very much a part of the show. She was one of the stars of the show. And so she eventually, after a couple of years playing Mary Livingston, she changed her name legally to Mary Livingston. Well, one of my questions on the list here was, who was Mary Livingston in relation to Jack Benny? Was she a girlfriend? Was she a neighbor? Was she somebody? Exactly. Who, <laughs> nobody, I never knew. And nobody, feeling, I don't think anybody knows, including the writers. Well, I'm, I'm feeling better about that because I thought I missed something along the way. No, I mean, if you listen to the radio shows over all the years, and Mary Livingston is on all the shows, uh -huh. but you're never quite sure sure just quite what her role is 
Uh, well, it, it baffled me, so I'm, I'm really pleased that uh, <laughs> you said I'm not the only one out there who didn't know. Well, it baffles me, too, so. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> talk, talk about her performance anxiety and how her parts on the radio show were handled when she wasn't able to appear. Well, over the years, I don't, and I quite frankly, I don't know the psychology of it. I wish I did. But over the years of performing, she became more and more nervous about performing to the point where she just couldn't do it anymore. And I don't, pardon me, I don't know where that stemmed from. But uh, the last year on radio, I played her part it, at the show. The live audience, I played Mary Livingston for the live audience, but she actually recorded the show she recorded her part at home uh-huh. in in our living room. And I guess the technology was such then that they could do that. They spliced her voice into the show. So what you heard on the radio was actually my mother. But I played the part for the radio audience. So were you lip I mean, for the, for the live audience. I'm sorry. I played the part for the live audience in, right. the, in the theater. So were you lip syncing to her words? No. I was actually saying her words. Oh, I, but, I see. Okay. okay. But I guess they cut my voice out and put her voice in. I don't even, to this day, I don't know how they did it. I, it. I don't know a lot about technology, but even back then they were able to do that. So as soon as you opened your mouth, they switched over to the recording and then went, went back to the regular script. Something like that. Well, my All God. I know is it worked, and when you heard the show on the air, you heard Mary Livingston. That's amazing. I, I love that. But you were Mary Livingston for all intents and purposes. For, for, the, for the live for the audience. Live yeah. audience mm -hmm. and while you were at the microphone. Right. It was fun. I love doing that. Ah, see? You have talent. <laughs> that was fun. How many times did you do that? Well, I think I did it for a whole season. So it was virtually every show for an entire season? I think so. It's a long time ago, so I can't... I can't be totally accurate and say I did it for every show for a season, but I seem to remember, I think it was my senior year in high school, or my maybe my junior year, but I, I did it, I think, for a whole season. So you were working with your father at something that was obviously very important to him. He was, he was a master at the craft. Did you get any feedback from him as the other performers would get? I don't remember, Patricia. I honestly don't remember. I remember I went to the Saturday rehearsals for the run-throughs, and then I did the show on Sunday. Wow. I never knew that. Joan, I never knew that. Walden, did you know that? Yep. Oh. <laughs> oh, silly me. Good for you, Walden. <laughs> silly me. He knows everything. Okay, Walden, I have a question. Yes, my, yes, Joan. Did I do that for a whole season? Yes, you did. Thank you. Yes, you did. <laughs> but for the audience sake, Joan did appear on the broadcast like three at a time. Uh, one when you were 10 years old, I think, when they had, oh no, I think you were eight. I think it was the dad's 10th anniversary show. And they actually did the broadcast live at your house. And they, you interacted on a small part of the show with your mom and dad. I kind of do remember that. And then I think, and then, then I think it was twice in the late 40s. You you were at the you know 
you were the little girl next door or something, selling cookies or something. I don't remember the the bit parts, but you actually did that uh, on the show twice. Besides, oh, my God. Yeah. And you're reminding me of things I'd forgotten. Yeah. Here's, you're right. I sold cookies. Yep. You're right. Yep. Yep. Oh, my God. Yep. Yep. But you were, you were, you were busy doing that stuff. You bet. Mostly I was busy in school. <laughs> <laughs> Well, tell me, I think, tell the audience, I think that's a cute story. How did you pick what university you went to? I think that's a cute story. Oh, about the book I read? Yes, uh uh-huh, about the book you read. Yes, well, I was a voracious reader, and I went to the Beverly Hills Public Library, and there was a book, and the title of the book was Joan Goes to Stanford. And I was about 15, I guess. I was probably a sophomore in high school, and I read this book, Joan Goes to Stanford. And when I finished it, that was it. Joan was going to Stanford. I was so enamored of the book and Joan going to Stanford that I actually didn't even send an application into any other school. I sent in one application, and that was to Stanford because that's where I was going. And you just assumed that was it. Oh, I had. there was no doubt in my mind. Good for you. I and, love that. And yep. Joan went to Stanford. Joan went to Stanford. <laughs> this is good. Oh, my oh, God. I still have. It was so It was so important to me, and I was so crazy about it after reading this book. And I have a scrapbook at home, and on a page in that scrapbook is the letter I received. Dear Miss Benny, congratulations and welcome to Stanford. That wow. was my that was my acceptance letter, and I look at it to this day. It makes me cry when I think that you know, congratulations and welcome to Stanford. Oh my God! Really, a touching moment for you. That is super. Now, Joan, when you went to college, you were out of the Hollywood milieu. I certainly was. How, but, what, <laughs> what happened in that transition? Well, it was kind of funny because. Uh, Gary Crosby was a freshman at Stanford at the same time. The two of us, we were the two celebrity brats at Stanford. And there was a very famous columnist uh, in the San Francisco paper. Uh, His name was Herb Cain. Do you remember that name? Yes, I do. And Herb Cain used to, from time to time, we would get calls, Gary and me, the two of us would get calls. Uh, what were we doing at Stanford and, you know, give him some stories and whatever. So he was always writing about the two of us at Stanford. It was kind of fun. And also Richard Zanuck was in my class at Stanford, Daryl Zanuck's son. Mm-hmm. And Mervyn Leroy's son, Warner, was in my class at Stanford. So you were not there all by yourself. When I say all by yourself, you had other people from the entertainment industry or associated with the entertainment industry. You were not there all by yourself as Jack Benny's daughter and nobody else. No, I wasn't alone. However, it was the first time in my life when I was completely away from what I would call my milieu. Mm -hmm. I I was away from my show business surroundings. And uh, I was at a school where, yes, well, I, I kind of knew Gary not very well. We became friends at Stanford, actually, because I had not known him before. Mm-hmm. And here I was at a school where uh, nobody was in show business. It was completely different from anything I had experienced before. And I, I loved it. I loved Stanford, and I loved um, – and I don't think people paid a lot of attention 
to my being a celebrity, celebrity's kid. I think when I first got there, there was certainly a curiosity. The, the young students, the freshmen, mm-hmm. were curious about, you know, who is this person? Who Who is Jack Benny's daughter? Is she going to be a snob? Is she going to be, you know, what's she going to be like? And I could sense that kind of curiosity. Uh-huh. But once they got to know me, I was just Joe College. Just right with the rest of the group. I wondered if it had been uh, a re-entry or an entry uh, challenge for you because it was such a dramatic difference from what you were accustomed to in the education system. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't different as far as education went. I'd been to a fairly tough high school, mm-hmm. and I'd had a pretty good education. So it was the only difference in the transition was that the kids who came from the east, which has nothing to do with my life as Jack Benny's daughter, but the kids who came from Andover and Exeter, the preps, the famous prep schools in the east, mm-hmm. I have to tell you, were much better prepared for college than I was coming from a Western school. Ah, okay. Well, I, I was not, forgive me, I didn't phrase my comment properly. No, I know that, and I know this is not what you called to talk to me about. Oh, no, 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 absolutely, because it, it is part of you, and it's part of your life, and it's part of um, the your entire family unit there. I was wondering about the the change in social, uh, the, the, the social entry. Yes, no, I know that's what you meant. And, uh, no, I, my college life was just like anybody else's college life. Uh-huh. Did your dad come to visit you? I'm trying to remember. I think he, yes, he did, because this is funny, he actually was playing a theater in San Francisco. And I would, he would come to the school to visit me, and I would go to San Francisco and sit through his shows. Great. Oh, I like that. And, oh my, you're just bringing, you just brought back an absolutely incredible memory. My father played the Curran Theater in San Francisco. This had to be early 1950s. And his opening act was Sammy Davis and the Will Maston Trio. Oh, wow. Wow. And I loved Sammy Davis, and I used to go, I, I had my car at Stanford, and I would drive to San Francisco every evening and stand in the wings and watch Sammy. And just, of course, he was so talented, it was ridiculous. Great story. Great story. Tell me about Sunday Nights at 7, the Jack Benny story. Well, that was great fun because... Uh, It took me a long time to get around to writing that book. Uh, I had been asked about it for years, you know, aren't you going to write a book about your father? And I said, no, I don't think so, because there's nothing to say about him. You read Mommy Dearest, you know, and uh, Gary Crosby wrote that book about his father, how dreadful his father was. And I thought... I don't have anything to say about my father. He had a very normal life. There was no scandal. He didn't have any terrible things happen. He had a very boring life. <laughs> I thought, you know, who's going to read a book about about this ordinary man? So it took me a long time. And finally, uh, it, the, there was a publishing company, uh, Warner Books. Well, actually, there was an agent who called me and said, you know, won't you write a book about your dad? And didn't he write an autobiography? And I said, well, yes, he did. And it's in, in my closet somewhere. And I hadn't thought about it. And 
he said, well, why don't you do something? And I came up with the idea of using the, his autobiography and writing my version and interweaving it with my version of Life with Father. Mm-hmm. And so that's how the book came about. What was, when, when you went over the material he had written in an autobiographical sense, what was the most striking or memorable story or passage he had written? I don't know that I could tell you that, that I have any particular one story that stands out in my mind. I think uh, the, the, the sections he wrote about the Second World War and when he went overseas to entertain the troops with Ingrid Bergman, with, I think, Carol Landis, uh, uh, Larry... Larry Adler. Thank you. I couldn't think of his last name. Larry Adler. Um, and so on. And I really, I remember that so well because I remember welcoming him home uh, when he would come home from those trips. Because when, from, when I was a little girl, those were the only times when he was really away from me was when he went overseas. Because when he was in, in the United States, as I said, they took me with them. So that was the one time he was away. And I remember him telling the stories. And then I... I had my version of what it was like when Daddy was away and when Daddy came home and mm-hmm. so on. What was it like when Daddy came home? Very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> did did you do anything special, or did the three of you do anything special when you were all reunited after something like this? I don't think I remember that we did anything special. I remember special occasions like birthdays and, and parties that we did and restaurants we went to to celebrate a birthday and parties. Of course, the parties at my parents' house were phenomenal. Uh, When I was a little girl, they had a New Year's Eve party every year. And all the stars in Hollywood were at their New Year's Eve parties. And I used to lie on my tummy on the upstairs landing and watch all the guests come in the front door. And then later, after dinner, they would gather in the living room and we would have our version of home entertainment. And when I think about the people who entertained, uh, it was a kind of, well, you know, doesn't everybody, when, when you have guests over, people sing or play the piano or do something to entertain after dinner. Well, of course, at our house, it was Tony Martin and Dinah Shore and Judy Garland and um, Sammy Kahn would play the piano, uh, Danny Kaye, and on and on. I mean, that was our home entertainment. Do you remember about when, in your growing up years, you recognized that the people who were at these parties or were at your home were not the people who went to work and, like, a police officer or a fireman or... They were different. Well, it's a kind of paradox in that I knew that they were celebrities. I knew they were major movie stars on the one hand, but on the other hand, they were just my parents' friends. And I kind of saw both sides of that. And my my mother's two closest friends were Barbara Stanwyck and Claudette Colbert. And I knew that they were movie stars, but they were, on, on the one hand, they were movie stars. On the other hand, they were Aunt Claudette and Aunt Barbara. Mm. So 
you were that close to them. Isn't that interesting? I want to go through just a handful of names here, and please give me some instant feedback, a line, a story, anything at all. George and Gracie. Well, they were my, George was my father's closest friend. They were joined at the hip, and they adored each other. And being with them was, I can only say, I had a privileged childhood in that I grew up with so much laughter. George Burns was hilarious. He could always make my father laugh doing practically nothing, and my father could never make him laugh. And... Go ahead. Well, you had, the closer you were to them, the funnier it was because you were anticipating. Before anything ever happened, you were anticipating. And George would do things, uh, if, if he would, was driving along, because they lived fairly close to each other in Beverly Hills, and my father loved to walk, and he'd be walking down the street, and George would be driving by, and George would stop the car and say, hi, Jack. My father would cross the street to say hello, and just as my father got to the car, George drove away. <laughs> and he would do this all, and my father was always the patsy. And he, he fell, fell for, for it, it every time. He fell for it every time. Oh, yeah. And, and of course, if you were privy to this, you were laughing your head off. And, I mean, they were just terribly funny together. That is really there fun. Was, Did uh, one, of the, one of the many stories about the two of them was uh, Louis B. Mayer, many years ago, gave a party to introduce his newest find, a singer named Jeanette McDonald. And she was going to entertain. She was an operatic-type singer. And she was going to entertain after dinner. And everybody gathered in the living room, and it was very serious. He was introducing this new talent, and George was sitting right behind my father. And Mr. Mayer introduced Jeanette McDonald. The, her accompanist played an introduction, and just as she started to sing, George leaned over to my father and said, he whispered, if you were to laugh, it would be very rude. Oh, my. Well, that's all he had to say. And my father, I, you know, my father broke up and <laughs> was practically thrown out. Oh, my gosh. How embarrassing. But that's and the kind of thing George would do. And it was, as I said, if, if you were in on it, you were laughing your head off. But he could stay deadpan. Oh, George. Uh-huh. Oh, Absolutely. Isn't Absolutely, that? and he did these terrible things to my father. What was and your father course, ever able to do back? Never. Never? Never. Oh, my My father goodness. could never make George laugh, and George... And the other thing that was a routine with them was in the middle of a phone conversation, George always hung up on him in the middle of the conversation, which started way back in vaudeville. That was a routine. Uh-huh. That, started way back then and it was sort of a thing George always hung up and one day uh, a mutual friend uh, an actor who had been on my father's show many times a comedian named Benny Rubin Benny Rubin said to my father I bet the next time you talk to George he won't hang up on you and my father said don't be silly he said I'll bet you fifty dollars and my father said I'll take the bet 
So he calls George, and they talk, and they talk, and they talk, and George doesn't hang up. And it goes, and finally my father's exasperated, and he says, why aren't you hanging up on me? And George said, because I have half of Benny's bet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, your poor dad. (laughs) Exactly. You you can't imagine how funny they were. They, did they? Did either one appear on the other's show at any time? Often, yes, often. It was was there? Tell me about one of those times when I can't. I I honestly don't remember. But they did an act um, at a show one time that was terribly funny, where my father played Gracie. Oh my! And my father dressed as a woman with high heels and the makeup and a dress like Gracie, and he played the part of Gracie. And they were really funny together. It was a, it was a very funny act. They must have made the audience absolutely lose it. They did. Oh, they did. Oh, my goodness. Tell me about Gracie in all of this. Well, Gracie's hard for me to talk about because their daughter, Sandra, was my best friend. Uh-huh. We're exactly the same age. And because George and my father were so close, Sandra naturally became my closest friend. And I knew Gracie really more as Sandra's mother than I knew her as Gracie Allen. Ah, okay. I knew her as, I knew her as my friend's mother. Mm-hmm. And because Sandra and I were, were little brats, we were always getting in trouble. <laughs> we were always getting into mischief. And... So it was always, Sandra, your mother's coming. We'd better hide. (laughs) So that was how I knew Gracie. (laughs) So you you knew Gracie as Sandra's mother. Yes. How how was Sandra's mother as a mother? She was not unlike my mother. She was strict, but she had a difficult time with Sandra because this is hysterical. Sandra was also adopted. Uh Uh-huh. And... Gracie, as if you remember, was a tiny little woman. Oh, yeah. Uh, George was very short, too. Both of them were. Gracie wasn't quite five feet tall. She was teeny. And Sandra grew up to be five foot eleven. Oh, my. Sandra was a giant. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful, but very tall and slim. And she towered over her mother. By the time she was 13, she towered over her mother. And it was so funny to see Gracie getting mad at Sandra because she had to look up. <laughs> that somehow loses power when you have it to It sure do does. That. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my. What was the worst thing you two ever got into? Well, I remember one Thanksgiving when there, we, this was at their house. This particular Thanksgiving was at their house, and the cook had made a turkey, and it was sitting in the pantry cooling to be carved for dinner, and Sandra and I went into the pantry, and both of us loved the turkey skin, and I still do, and I rather imagine so to Sandra, and we skinned the entire turkey, and we got in so much trouble. But we ate all the skin off the turkey. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I would have been right there with you. And then there was the time, and this was not Sandra and me, her brother Ronnie, whose closest friend was Fred Astaire's son. 
A lot of people don't even know that Fred Astaire had a son. They remember his daughter, Ava, but he had a son, Freddie Jr. And the only reason I know that is because he was Ronnie's closest friend. Mm -hmm. And he was over at the house all the time. And they were teenagers. And Ronnie and Freddie decided to build a catamaran. They were big beach people. Both of them were beach bums. They loved to surf and they loved to be at the beach. And so in the Burns' backyard in the driveway, they built this gorgeous catamaran. And it really was beautiful. They did a fabulous job. There was just one problem. They couldn't get it out of the backyard. <laughs> Because they had a port cochere over the driveway okay. at the side door, uh -huh. and there was no way the catamaran could come down the driveway. So it stayed in the back of the... <laughs> it never left the driveway. Oh, my gosh. They had, they had stable artwork in the backyard. So uh, those are just some... You asked me some funny things I remember, and I remember that catamaran. And I remember Sandra and me skinning the turkey. Oh, my. I, I think I would remember skinning the turkey. Uh, because, <laughs> because of the aftermath. I mean, the turkey was great, but it, the aftermath on a, on a Thanksgiving, I think I probably would remember that, too. Oh, yeah. We got in a lot of trouble for that. So. Oh, gee. <laughs> I, I want to take a right turn here. You mentioned something uh, that few people knew that Fred Astaire had a son. How come? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. But I have mentioned that to people because his daughter, Ava, was kind of, everybody kind of knew about Fred Astaire, Ava Astaire. Uh -huh. And there are people who have mentioned, you know, Fred Astaire and, oh, did you know his daughter? And I'll say, no, but I knew his son. And they'll say to me, he didn't have a son. And I'll say, no, you're wrong. He did. Yeah. Isn't that peculiar? Yes, it is. And I don't, and I don't have an answer. Huh. I really don't know. Okay, well, I left off at George and Gracie. Tell me about Mel Blanc. Well, I loved Mel because he was, first of all, he was a dear man. And I never stopped asking him to do his voices, and he was always adorable. And I've heard from other people who knew him or who met him <clears throat> that he was always gracious to any fan who said, do Bugs Bunny, you know, do one of, do Tweety Bird, and he always did. He always accommodated his fans, and my father loved him, and so did I, and I just remember, I mean, his wife Estelle, and I remember when, this, this sad story, but when he was dying many, many years later, and I went over to visit, and I rang the doorbell, and the last thought I had before Estelle answered the door was, Joan, don't ask him to do Tweety Bird. Oh, uh, <laughs> so, but that was so much a part of your relationship with him. Oh, absolutely. Uh, do Sylvester, do Tweety Bird. Yeah. He was a lovely man. He really, really touched your heart, I can tell that. Ronald Coleman, they did the shtick about the orange tree. Uh, on on the um, program. Now there was, you know, we, uh, one of your callers asked me about Babe. Was she really my mother's sister? And of course she was. W were the Coleman's really your neighbors? And the answer is no. I have no idea where they lived, but it was certainly nowhere near us. And the fact is, I didn't know the Coleman's. So it really was part of the show and only the show when exactly. we exactly. 
they weren't friends of ours. So when, when Ronald and Benita appeared on the show and pretended they were neighbors, that's exactly what it was. They pretended it, they... Absolutely. But then later in television, uh, Jimmy and Gloria Stewart played the neighbors. Uh-huh. If you remember. I do remember. Well, that was true. They really were our neighbors. Well, I'm down to Jimmy and Gloria Stewart on my list here. Talk to me about them. Oh, well, they were delightful. I, Again, Gloria, Gloria was beautiful. I loved the way she looked. She was very chic, and she just had a great look about her. And they, were, they again, were really lovely, down-to-earth, easy people. And they lived next... They didn't live right next door. They were one door away from next door. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I like them a lot. No, next door was Lucille Ball lived next door. Oh, she's next on my list, but I don't want to let go of the Stewarts for a minute. I okay. had heard, I had heard or read that Jimmy Stewart was a home gardener. Is that correct? Well, actually, Gloria was the gardener, but I think he helped. Uh-huh. I don't, you know, something I don't really know whether he did it or not. I know Gloria did. They they bought the property next door. Um, on the corner of Roxbury and Lexington, there was an old derelict house that had been for sale and was kind of falling down. Next to that was a beautiful English house, and that's where Jimmy and Gloria lived. And at some point, they bought that old derelict house next door, tore it down, and kept that lot, and Gloria made that into her garden. Oh, how neat is that? Did the neighbors so, get... Did you get goodies from the garden? No. <laughs> oh, my. No, I don't think we did. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. No tomatoes there. Lucy I Ball. don't think so. Lucille Ball. You mentioned Lucy. Uh, well, now, Lucy moved in. When, when we first built the house, the people who lived next door, their name